Well, good morning again. My name is Sean. Again, I'm the lead pastor here. And we're just about to wrap up our series on Ecclesiastes. We have this week, and then next week we'll be finishing the book of Ecclesiastes. And after that, for uh, the month of September, we'll be going over our vision and values that we have as a church and what that means for us where we are right here in Midlothian. And then we're going to jump into the Old Testament book of Malachi, and that'll take us through Advent. But for now, we're in Ecclesiastes starting in chapter 11. You're welcome to turn there in your own Bibles or pull out your smartphones. The ESV app is very good. I highly recommend it. Or if you don't have your own Bible, you're welcome to reach down there in the chair in front of you, and that dark book is a Bible. And this passage today can be found on page 525. And if you don't have your own Bible at home, please take that one with you as our gift. We'd be happy for you to have that. So before we get to the passage, I kind of want to get us into the mood of this passage or kind of the big ideas of what's going on in this passage. So I want to throw up a picture. And boys and girls who are still here, I want you to tell me who this is. Come on, you can do better than that. Who's this? Wally. That's right, Wally from the Pixar movie Wally. Okay, so like, spoiler alert, sorry, it's been long enough. I'm going to ruin the movie for you. So it turns out there's all these humans, like thousands of humans, on a spaceship way far away, and supposedly it was supposed to be a cruise to go for a little while, while these little robots, a bunch of these wallies, would clean up all the garbage that humans left behind. Turns out it's been 700 years. This cruise has turned into life as humans know it, through a weird series of events, they have an opportunity, a chance to go back home to Earth, and the captain is trying to get him to go back to Earth, but it turns out that the villain is the main computer, or actually the computer programmer, because the main computer has been programmed with a couple of key prerogatives. One, take no risks. Two, keep humans alive. And so because of that, this main computer thwarts every attempt to get him to go back to Earth. And finally, the captain who's trying to get, get him back to Earth is arguing with this computer. There's this great scene where the computer, with as much frustration and emotion as a Pixar computer can have, goes, humans will live. And the captain goes, we don't want to just live, survive. We want to live. And that's the emotion right where we are in this book of Ecclesiastes. He's wrapping up the book of Ecclesiastes and that urge, I don't want to just endure. I don't want to just survive. I want to live is what this pastor philosopher has been talking about since chapter nine, that God's people can live under the sun and not just endure and survive, but actually have real abiding joy and happiness today. You can live. So where have we been? He's been talking to those in God's family, those who rest in God's gracious approval. He's been telling us for the last two or three chapters, it is wisdom to live in that approval, to actually believe what God says when he says, I approve you, go have joy. It's wisdom to give our heart away and rest in that gospel of grace. But we've also recognized that we have another problem our inner voice, the little Puritan who lives in our head, the voice of foolishness who tells us to doubt God's kindness, never be secure, never really rest in God's approval. And because of that foolishness, we have to defiantly remind ourselves of grace. That's all ground he's covered. Today, as he wraps up, he's not only going to remind us that God wants us to enjoy life, but he's going to show us what it is in life that challenges our joy. Here's where we really need to have a gut check. These two questions. 
Does grace merely help us endure this life? Or, as God's redeemed people, do we actually rejoice in this life? So with that in mind, would you please turn either to page 10 in your order of worship in your own Bibles. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 7, going through chapter 12, verse 8. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent, The grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and the terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern. And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Now this is God's word. Let's pray together. Now gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your word this morning, and as we've confessed many times in the book of Ecclesiastes, your word is uh, enigmatic, sometimes seems weird, hard to understand, and so we pray, Lord, that you would once again send your spirit as you've promised and open this text up to us, that we might know your truth and be changed by it. Lord, help us to see our wisdom, to see our foolishness, and to walk in the grace you offer us yet again in Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen. All right, so I very rarely do this, but I'm gonna invite those of you who have a writing utensil to take that out. We're gonna do a little bit of marking on page 10 real quick. Those of you who don't have, that's fine. We'll get there verbally, but this might help you. So what I want you to do, first of all, I want you to go to, let's see here, let's go to verse eight. And towards the end of verse eight, you see, but let him remember. I want you to circle the word remember at the end of verse eight. And I want you to go to the very beginning of chapter 12, verse 1, and circle that word, remember. All right, and then the very first word in verse 9, rejoice. Underline that one. And then go down to chapter 12, and at the end of verse 1, you see the word before there. I want you to uh, underline the word before. The beginning of verse 2, there's a word before. The beginning of verse 6 is a word before. 
All right, so I'll go over those one more time real quick. Verse 8 and 12.1, circle the word remember. Verse 9, underline the word rejoice. And then 12.1, 12.2, and 12.6, underline the word before. The reason I do that is because sometimes it, the Holy Spirit's very nice, and when he puts the Bible together, he actually gives us lang- language to tell us how to understand a text. And this is one of those ones where it kind of puts those things in there. The two remembers kind of divide this text and tell us how we're supposed to understand this thing. So the two big thoughts are the remembering in verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 8, and chapter 12, verse 1 are our two big thoughts about how we're supposed to remember. And that gets us to our theme, which will unpack everything else. Our theme for today is this. Young or old, remembering to be happy is easier when you remember what God is like. We've seen over and over again, he's actually used the word happy, that we're supposed to be happy. Our inner Puritan says that sounds superficial, so we always try to change it and religious it up. Oh, let's be uh, joyful or pleasant or something, but no, it means happy. And then he comes along and tells us to rejoice, and he tells us now that remembering God's commands, rooted in God's character, empowers our joy under the sun. Let's jump right in. Chapter 11, starting verses 7 through 10, he tells us remembering God's commands empowers our joy. So he's wrapping up his book. This is the last shot in the gun, so to speak. And what does he choose to tell us? He chooses to tell us right here in verse 7 and 8, savor the sweetness of life. Each new sunrise is a pleasant gift. Go out and let the sun shine on your face. Enjoy it. Living under the sun as the people of God right now means we have joy. Life is to be savored, he wants us to see. And just as an aside, by the way, this is Jesus' point when he redefines the Sabbath as a gift to be enjoyed when he's arguing with the religious leaders. This is what he talks about. God has put all these gifts in creation for us to enjoy, for us to savor, and it's good for us to take one day of the week and say, I'm going to savor these and rest from all the things that try to get me to not savor. Enjoying the sweetness of life, not a list of don'ts is the Christian Sabbath. I mean, that was for free. That's different. So back to this text. Verses 7 and 8 kind of give us the foundational principle where everything is going to stand. It's this. Those changed by grace, those living in the reality of the gospel, resting in God's approval, all those kinds of people enjoy life. It's that simple. And I love how this is biblical realism because verse 8 owns that in that command to enjoy life, there's going to be lots of days of darkness. And so if we're not grounded in the joy that comes from grace, when those dark times come, we'll think they're abnormal. We'll think they're weird. We'll think something is going wrong, and so we won't have joy. Instead, we'll hunker down, hold our breath, kind of wait for that big old struggle to get over so we can what? Get on with life, right? As if the bad things happening are not part of life we're supposed to get on with. We have to wait. See, verse 8 calls us to remember that those dark days are part of the deal, God's people don't just hit pause when life gets hard, when things hurt. We, I know we try. We try to punt to make these bad things into good things somehow and say, well, I know it's bad, but you know, God is teaching you something through it. Well, maybe. Maybe it's just bad because the world is frustrating under the sun. Well, well you know, maybe God is trying to teach you something. Or maybe God is changing. God has a purpose behind this, and we weaponize Romans 8.28. You know how we do because we are uncomfortable with someone else's suffering. We try to get them to stop it. But this comes here and says, no, don't do that. Bad days are coming. 
He says they're vanity, they're vapor, they're meaningless, they're frustrating. See, if we embrace the gospel of God, verse in chapter nine where he says, rest in his approval. He's already approved you. If we rest in that, we have resources to have joy, even in the dark times. Ecclesiastes goes so far as to say that having joy in dark times is what it means to be godly. And that is so different from the way most of us assume we define that word, huh? It's almost shocking. And look with me at verse 9. I'll show you where this is in the text. Verse 9 says this. says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. I'm going to have to confess right up front, this verse is going to bug our inner Puritan, so buckle up. Okay? First, couple things. The word rejoice is in commandment form. This is one of those good King James. We could say, thou shalt rejoice, O young man. It's a commandment. Why? Who? Well, it's younger people. When I say that, we think teenagers in our culture, but to them, it was anyone who they would look at and say, not an elder. I'll let y'all define that yourselves. (laughs) Not touching that one. So, So first of all, rejoice is a commandment. Second, we're told to do what? Let your heart make you cheerful. We can even translate it beautiful. Let your heart make you beautiful. And then we have another command, thou shalt walk in the ways of your heart and then follow the sight of your eyes. You bothered yet? You tracking with them? A preacher which is what this, the guy's called himself throughout the text. The preacher is talking about young people just following their hearts, being concerned about their happiness, guided by what they see. That kind of preacher usually concludes with, and that's what's wrong with young people today with their rap music and Birkenstocks and tickety talks. <laughs> right? But the text doesn't do that, does it? What does the text follow that with? It says, know that God will bring you into judgment. And our heir Puritan jumps on that, right? Absolutely, God's going to get you for that. So if it's, if, it's, if it's fun, if it's enjoyable, if it's pleasant, God probably doesn't like it, you shouldn't be doing it. That's what it means, right? Judgment. But we have to read judgment in light of the commands because God says, do this, and then judges us for how well we do it. And what are the two things he just commanded? What are the two commandments right before this? Thou shalt rejoice, thou shalt walk after your heart. We have to read that judgment in context and say we are being judged for how well we rejoice, how well we follow a cheerful heart. It turns on its head, doesn't it, the traditional notion of judgment. God wants us to enjoy ourselves so much and he says he's going to judge us for how well we do it. It's a totally different kind of reckoning, isn't it? When God's people face him for judgment, you do realize this, right? If you're inner Puritan screaming and throwing things like mine is right now. When God's people face God for judgment, you realize it's not going to be on, well, how good were you? Because like, um, hello, bad. We're terrible at that. We're not good at being good, right? That's uh, like why we need Jesus and the gospel, Right? So we, see, we appear before God standing on the righteousness of Jesus, not our behavior. So he doesn't look at us and go like, well, let's see how you did today. It's like, oh yeah, you failed. Jesus passed. 
you're in. Praise God. What are we judged for? We're judged for how did we appropriate the resources God gave us? Did we actually believe him enough to live in the joy that he died to give us? Did we rejoice enough? Is what he tells us he's going to judge us for here. Boys and girls, I want to make sure you're tracking with me. Let's look at your page 11 there, verse 9. Here's how how he did it for you. It says, while you were young, love life and do things you enjoy since God will judge your life. I've been a Christian since my late teens. And I have to confess, and I've been to seminary, until this passage, it never crossed my mind that God would judge his people for how much they actually rejoice in this life. But that's how God has revealed himself. And it's only my inner fool the voice of my inner Puritan that imputes to God a rigid taskmaster persona and then reads scripture through that idol. Let me give you an example of this in case you're not tracking with me. The Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, the really mean book. I mean, Deuteronomy is two in in Greek. Nomos is law. So this is the second giving of the law. So you, you don't just get it in the first four books. Here comes book number five to really nail you with God's law. And it's all about do this, don't do that. Can't you read the signs? And here's the curses when you don't do it. God outlines all these curses. But then he sums up this book in a crazy way. Look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 45 through 47. You have to turn there. We'll have it on a slide for you. Summing up this book, he says this, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes he commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. It's right there in the manual, and we miss it, don't we, Christians? God wants us to be joyful and glad in the gifts he gives, and so he commands it. By placing his approval over us in the gospel, he empowers us to then obey him. This is who God is. Do you know this God? This joyful, gifting God who wants his people to be happy. The writer of Ecclesiastes is desperate that you do. And it gets even crazier. I have to confess, I love this next verse because it takes seriously our inner critic and tells us exactly how to deal with it. Look with me at chapter 11, verse 10, there on page 10. It says this, it says, remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. We could translate this even more dramatically, but yet faithfully, rebel against the grief and anger in your heart. Force misery to pass you right by. See, when that inner Puritan starts talking smack about God's character, doubting his grace, trying to get you to live a joyless life, you go full brave heart. Verse 10 tells you, paint your face blue, Grab your sword and violently depose that lying tyrant from your life. But in all seriousness, think about this. What does it tell us that here in the text, it tells us that we have to rebel against grief and pain? It tells us that those things want to rule our life. 
Even those of us who are in Jesus, we feel those things trying to control us, don't we? We can tell very often, especially when we're stressed, it's usually fear and pain guiding our decision-making more than the light of Scripture and the Holy Spirit, isn't it? Because those things want to rule us. God's word here says those changed by grace, we rise up against those false masters of sorrow and pain. By grace, we rebel against the fear, the darkness, the pain in our hearts, and instead we submit to the rule and reign of our Creator who approves us by grace, who commands us to live in joy, and then empowers us to do so. If we really get this, this is a moment, this is a, a, a passage, I should say, that can speak right into our culture is right now at this moment, this 3,000-year-old text. Because our culture is all about freedom. And this passage talks about freedom too, doesn't it? Rebel against these things. See, but our culture assumes that freedom is all about choice without limits. Freedom from all constraint. Philosophers call this negative freedom. The Bible, candidly, is not interested much in negative freedom. But the Bible lays out God's quest to bring about positive freedom, is what philosophers call it. It's the freedom to pursue something good. So instead of freedom being choice without limits, no constraints, biblical freedom is the freedom to do something good. See, Christianity is not a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's about flourishing under God's grace as His grace changes you. That's why verse 9 tells us to walk in the ways of our heart, our cheerful heart, our beautiful heart, our heart that has been changed by grace. Walk in the ways of that heart. It's not a license to sin, but instead grace offers you the power to be who you were meant to be before sin messed you up so much. What an incredible thought that grace empowers your joy because you were meant to be joyful. See, young or old, remembering to be happy is easier when you remember what God is like. And then moving on to chapter 12, we see that remembering God's character empowers our joy. Look at me at chapter 12, verse 1. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come. It's another commandment form. Thou shalt remember your creator. That's his solution. That's his big actuate. Remember your creator. It almost seems like a letdown, doesn't it? I ran across this interview while I was doing some research and preparing for this by the lead singer of U2, uh, Bono. He had a beautiful quote about this I want to share with you. Here's what he said in an interview. He said, Ecclesiastes is one of my favorite books It's a book about a character who wants to find out why he's alive, why he was created. He tries knowledge, he tries wealth, he tries experience, he tries everything. You hurry to the end of the book to find out why, and it says, remember your creator. In a way, it's such a letdown, yet it isn't. See, Bono sort of gets it, doesn't he? In the battle to live a life of rejoicing, one of the key weapons is to remember who God is. He's our creator. Why creator? Why under inspiration isn't it? Remember your Lord. Remember your God. No, remember your creator. Because all the stuff in this world, even when it's frustrating under the sun, God has put all these gifts in creation for our enjoyment and pleasure. 
going back to verse 7 and 8. So he says, while you are younger, which again means not an elder, whatever that means, root yourself in God's character, who he says he is, not who our inner Puritan says he is. And we need that truth because dark times are coming. These eight verses here, starting in chapter 12, outline three specific kinds of tough times that are coming, all marked out by the word before, which is why I had you underline it. But the, verse 1, verse 2, and verse 6. First, the first before is before the evil or bad days come, before the fears and the griefs pile up, robbing us of pleasure. Back in chapter 11, verse 10, we just saw, it tells us to rebel against those things, to force evil to pass us by. Here we see in verse 1, evil has settled down in our life. Those evil days will rob us of joy as we age if we don't remember our Creator. Second, chapter, or verse 2 has before our body wears out in this long process that saps away our joy and pleasure, we need to remember our Creator. This, this pastor philosopher writing this book really wants you to feel this. And so what he does, he sets up this beautiful poetic metaphor between a, a decaying house and the decaying infrastructure of a town as a metaphor for our decaying body. I want you to read with me again verses 3 through 5 in the light of that metaphor and just feel this decay. In the day, starting in verse 3, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed, the doors on the street are shut, when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low, they are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Do you feel it? Do you feel this inevitable demise, this slow sapping of strength, this, this increasing lack of youthful joy, the pleasures of life and vitality just slipping away? It's like that old quote, right? Once you get to a certain age, everything hurts, and what doesn't hurt doesn't work. You know, or it's one thing to learn about Newton's you know, law of entropy. It's another thing to live it out, right? But Ecclesiastes here is being this realistic because he's not calling us to be sentimental about aging. God's Word wants us to think of aging as an attack on joy, and so we have to be prepared for it. It's a long, grudging process. These are the dark days warned of earlier. And if you're not rooted in the joy of the Lord from your youth, if you don't remember and walk with God, you know, obey all those commandments from chapter 11, you will become the stereotypical bitter old person. Retired age people here, you feel that temptation, don't you? <laughs> the world is so different from what you've always known, isn't it? You feel out of place. The fact that people actually feel empowered and smug to say, okay, boomer, without getting slapped, all of that can overwhelm your joy if you let it. Which takes us to the final before in verse six, referring to broken silver cords, golden bowls, shattered pitchers, all valuable 
beautiful and needed things now broken down and no longer useful. He says we need to remember our Creator, embrace His grace before age comes to valuable, beautiful, needed people and shatters them. See, we're supposed to feel the sickness in our gut right now, the disappointment, even defeat or regret because this decay is not natural. If the Christian story is true, we were not meant to grow old, weak, and die. It's the result of a curse. And he reminds us of that in verse 7. Look at me at verse 7. It says, The dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. A clear reference, if you know the story, to Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, where God curses Adam with death and decay, saying, You are dust, and to dust you shall return. And why does he curse him? Because that's the wages Adam earned for his rebellion in the garden. We're reminded that that decay, that death is a curse, and we are all under that curse. We earn it. It's coming. But before all that overwhelms us, remember your Creator. We root ourselves in the character of God, the God who approves us by grace, who by that same grace overcame the wages of sin and curse that we earned. You know, earlier we looked at Deuteronomy 28, where God said he would curse his own people for not being joyful and cheerful under his grace. I think many of us, if we're candid, when we read that, we stood condemned, didn't we? We are so often fools, defined by Ecclesiastes, listening to our inner Puritan. We're commanded to rejoice. We're commanded to rebel against grief and sorrow. We're commanded to force pain to pass us by. And we hear that and we see ourselves as profound commandment breakers. Huh. We have earned God's curse. See, but the gospel of Jesus Christ overcomes our failure. It overcomes our curse. The curse of death and decay on Adam that we live in is the same curse that Jesus suffered on the cross. He died the death that we should have died for our sin, so we no longer can live under the curse of death. One day we will live out 12-7. Our bodies will return to the earth. Our spirits will return to God, but until then, we can face that long decline to death with joy. Because not only did Jesus absorb the sin that was ours, in the gospel, he offers us new life by his life. Deep pleasure, deep fulfillment in him. That's why Jesus Christ himself said in that famous verse, many of you memorized, I've come to give you life abundantly talking about quality, not quantity, giving us joy. See, and even when we struggle to believe, even when we struggle to cast off the grief and anger and fear in our heart, even when we forget God's grace, the gospel of Jesus promises us that when we fail to remember our Creator, He remembers us. He approves us. And he empowers us with joy in this life. Oh, don't you want that? Oh, then place your faith and trust in Jesus as the resurrected Lord. And he will give you this. And if you have done that, 
Ask the Lord, dear Christian, to show you more of Jesus so you can have more joy. Let's pray together. A gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we stand before your word, a word that seems so simple and yet utterly unattainable. Lord, we can't work ourselves up to joy. There's no seven-step program, no 30-minute exercise to do. But Lord, we have to trust you and rest in your grace, and it's so hard to do. So Lord, we pray for ourselves, especially those of us who already know you, who are privileged to call you Father by grace. Lord, would you help us to silence the inner fool yet again, to rebel against the grief in our heart, and to live in the joy that your grace empowers. Would you help us, Lord, to believe the gospel? And Lord, we pray for those here today who don't know you. Lord, we pray that even now you would make them hunger for joy more than air. And we pray that as Jesus Christ has been shown to be crucified for sin, raised for new life as the source of this joy, that you would do your work and you would draw all people to him. Even now, Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done right here as it is in heaven and that people would confess faith in Christ and have joy. We pray you would do this by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.